0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the latest Rosenfeld Review Podcast. I am here with Hannah Nagel. Hi, Hannah.
1: Hi, Lou.
0: Great to have you on the show. Hannah is one of our speakers at the DesignOps Summit this November in New York City and uh, was actually involved in last year's event as well. Glad to have her there. And uh, I'm always really happy when we have people who... Um, span multiple years because there's a story behind every event just as there's a story that grows uh, behind every area every topic like in this case design ops and and uh, it's nice to have people who kind of gradually help build the event just like they're helping to to build the field and I think Hannah you're a great example of that because you have a, a kind of a very unique perspective Uh, Hannah is a lead UX researcher at SAP Customer Experience, but comes at operations from both design and research perspectives, which is really cool. And then she kind of squares the circle in another way uh, in that she has experience in nonprofits, startups, enterprises, even UNESCO, as well as, of course, her, her work at SAP today. So that's quite a lot of different directions that your uh, or facets to your journey toward uh, design operations. Did you know that you were going to be doing design operations when you started your career?
1: I don't think I even knew what that term meant. But I think one of the things I love about UX is that it's really... Really draws from a wide variety of, of skill sets and backgrounds and brings it all together because it is so intersectional. Um, and when I started working, my first role was, um, was with UNESCO in Jerusalem and then working with um, nonprofits. And the thing that was really attractive to me in that setting was thinking about how to enact change and what you needed to do both on the ground and on a higher up level so working with government in that instance how to create a framework that would you know deliver the outcome that we wanted Mm -hmm. Um, and that translated really well over to UX of course in a different industry setting but the approach I found um, was very similar in thinking about who the users are, what's currently working for those, those users or, the, or those people, and then creating a framework that allowed them to improve their lives in a certain way. Interesting.
0: And so you carried that forward into the next job, I assume, which was what?
1: Um, my next job was working as a designer for a fintech startup. And the thing I really loved about that role was being able to go deep into something really complex. So I think looking back, I... Realize that the things that are that are really interesting to me, that really spur me forward, are those really specific and complex issues that have a really wide range of of people, a really wide range of stakeholders, um, and some some sort of you know, there's regulatory elements to consider. There's a wide range of of psychology inputs. Um, in fintech, it might be what's triggering stress or what kind of environments are they thinking about when they're making these financial decisions, um, and then creating. a a system, an environment, a context that enables them to have the output that they want.
0: Interesting. So um, what I like about that is you you kind of talk both about depth and and breadth in the same breath, really. I mean, the the depth of the challenge and yet the breadth of looking at it as as a kind of a systems challenge, right? I mean, many stakeholders uh, probably working at many levels. And so I I know in your, your, uh, your background, uh, you've, Learned a bit about service design. I imagine that's been a really important thing for helping you look at things from a systems perspective.
1: Yeah, I definitely think they're really complementary. I think working now, now that I work in enterprise at SAP, it can be it can be a challenge to constantly remember that full context um, and remembering that you know when you're working on a, a system or a framework solution, the ones that I work on are framework solutions, not a single product, and so. I'm tasked with looking at perhaps one interaction flow, but that one interaction flow is part of a very large framework that actually plugs into a wide range of other modules or products. So it starts to get very complex. So when I'm thinking about usability or the user experience of a specific element, um, I need to keep taking a step back and think about what is the full context that they're working in and will we solve this purely by this interaction flow? Is there some sort of service design element, some sort of way of designing the delivery of that experience or designing the environment that they operate in um, that will help us to get closer to that goal?
0: So like, th- th- that's a question I have uh, for really anyone involved in service design is you have this sort of powers of 10 challenge that, uh, you know, I don't know if it was the uh who did this, but there's a great, uh, uh short film powers of 10 where they kind of pan all the way back from uh, a few people on planet earth back into the solar system they keep panning further further back and then i think they get to the universe and then they pan forward and i think they then get as far as like uh you know atoms inside the one of those figures that they started with and i how do you kind of know when to pan back and when to pan forward. I mean, everything you can, there's no end to the potential of panning in one direction or the other. And, you know, it's so complicated to understand, at least for someone like me who's not a service designer, where, where, what's the right frame to look at something in? What's macro, but not too macro? What's micro, but not too micro?
1: But it's definitely a challenge and I'm continuing to try and refine and get better at. Something that someone told me that I found really helpful was to think about what I could impact and what was, I guess, out of scope to use that term. So what, what is the whole situation that we're looking at? What are all the systems or the processes, the regulatory elements that we need to consider? And then what out of those are do we not have power to alter? Mm-hmm. Um, and what can we not change? And then I start looking for intervention points. So what, where are people already gathering or what are they already doing? What's something that they're, that's already in their lived experience that's working well for them? Um, and that might be a point where we can intervene to make a change either in their, their behavior or the system that they're using. Um, something that we draw a lot from sustainable development is that you can't force top-down changes. Whether you're looking to, you know, the lofty goal of a peace in the Middle East, um, which is something that we were working towards um, in Jerusalem, or whether you're trying to do something more perhaps, you know, everyday mundane working on on a fintech application and trying to impact the way that people manage their money, we're not going to be able to change everything but what are they already doing that's a habit or that's working well for them and then what about that situation can we build on in order to get them closer to something that works better for them and I think it works better is something that I always try to keep in mind also that we're not going to get there in one step we're not going to jump to the mountain and you know one leap we're going to go step by step and we're going to build a new behavior that becomes more of more of a ritual some more of a habit um, and once that becomes more ingrained, we can take the next step.
0: Well, you know, it's funny you mention uh, the idea of identifying small things that that actually lead to change, and obviously, the more of them, the, the more of a cumulative effect you get. Uh, it's it's interesting to me that you mentioned that and your work at uh, in Jerusalem at UNESCO. Just last night, I had dinner uh, with my brother and his partner, and uh, she they just were in Israel, and she was telling me how one of the things she learned um, in talking to uh, some people in the West Bank was uh, just having border guards that were not 18 and 19 years old, but like 50-year-olds who were there for a long period of time and started to recognize the people who were crossing into work every day into Israel and uh, had a, a sense of, you know, more a more uh, developed, nuanced sense of the humanity of the people that they were monitoring and got to be familiar with them over time and just were, were more mature, that's a small change that can have a big impact in that type of setting. It sounds like you're looking for ways to do that in the context of design operations to, to sort of set your scope by knowing what you can and can't actually change. Maybe that deals with the whole panning issue and then looking for those small things that you actually yeah. can have a finger on and can
1: Yeah. I think something that I really took away from my time working um with those initiatives is not to be to be realistic about the situation on the ground and not to be discouraged by those small steps because small steps are sustainable. Um and bringing that back to design ops when you're trying to do something well I guess everything feels large when you're trying to make a change and thinking about that that kind of dream scenario where you want to be How would your team be working best? What would be the best environment for them to deliver, you know, the dream product? Um, And what can you do right now? And what can you do in three months? And what can you do in two years? And then who are the stakeholders, the kind of high up stakeholders, whether that's the board or maybe director level? What kind of buy-in do you need from them? What kind of organizational, you know, rules do you have that you need to abide by? What of those can you maybe change? Because everything can be changed. You might not be able to change it tomorrow, but if you can build a value case and show, you know, kind of a strength in numbers thing and bring people with you, you can keep taking those small steps and just not lose momentum. Even though it's sometimes one step forward, two steps back, or even more than two steps back. um, If you, when you have that, you know, going back out again, that really long term plan, which I make these really overwhelming deck presentations about like the whole massive plan that I want, but I need those for me to think about that full context and all the little points along the way that I need to interact with. But I've learned when I'm delivering it to someone, they are less appreciative of that really detailed 45 page deck that I've delivered and they really only needed two slides because that's their action area. But when they ask a question, what if, um, then I have that deck for myself or I have that plan for myself about the full context so that they feel assured, they feel confident that there is this panoramic view, that kind of panoramic plan.
0: Okay, so it'd be great to kind of maybe get into some of those those small changes in the the research context. I I know your your talk is tentatively titled Turning Research Ripples into Waves. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about some of those ripples?
1: Yeah, one of the things that I was looking at um, was how can I make research more impactful on the product? I know as researchers, you know we're, we're user advocates. We're really trying to bring in their, their experiences, their their feedback around usability, etc. Um, but we also want it. To, we don't just want. We don't want the buck to stop there. We don't want to deliver a report or you know a video clip and have that be the end. We want it to somehow shape people's uh, decisions about the product we might not necessarily be the people making those decisions. So there seemed to be this stop gap there between me delivering something and it impacting, you know, maybe the designer or the product owner, whoever it was that kind of held that product decision power. Um, so then I started looking at those intervention spaces. So where do people make decisions about product? Who makes those decisions? What resources do they use? What time constraints are they in? What kind of time stresses? And thinking about how I could look at what was working well for them and address what was working less well, and then build that more into a wave. Um, So I started interviewing product owners, because where I work, they have the most uh, decision-making power over these product decisions. Um, and I asked them about their, I started asking about their work environment, so who, who's on their team, do they have a dedicated researcher or designer, um, how do they get their requirements and how do they refine those requirements, and how do they find out about users? And then we talked about what worked well and what didn't work well for them, and I started to build around that. And because I'm not able to measure necessarily how many people, you know, have made T- taken up my recommendations. So I was kind of struggling with the kind of metrics that I might use for it. Um, and one of my colleagues gave me a really great example of the, the ask a librarian concept. You know, He said he went, he brought his kid to college and you, know, you go through that kind of onboarding process and you learn that whenever you have a question about anything, what really a wide range of things, you can go to the library. And the more people interact with the library, that is a success metric, that pure engagement metric. Um, and so that was kind of the first metric I was looking at um, in, in terms of turning it in from a ripple into a wave was how many people were engaged and actively looking for that information instead of perhaps feeling like it's it's interrupting their workflow, feeling like it's going to enhance their workflow.
0: I'm, I'm smiling on this end because I don't know if you know, I, I came out of library science and I remember being taught exactly that. So. Oh, it goes around, comes around. I'm <laughs> happy any time people mention librarianship. But anyway, go on.
1: Yeah, no, I love the library, I love the library analogy for a lot of reasons. Um, I think that libraries, I also worked in a library for a bit um, in, in a design capacity. And I think libraries can sometimes be a bit... opaque in terms of how they work. I mean, I would sometimes still struggle to like find books like the the Dewey Decimal System, like sometimes just finding stuff would be a challenge. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Not knowing things is okay. And I had the attitude that I knew, you know, I knew librarians were there to help me. They were going to help me achieve my end task. And so I could just go to them with my challenge because the outcome I wanted was not to find the book. The outcome I wanted was to get the insight I needed to produce the paper, which is my deliverable. So when I think about that analogy for research operations, if researchers are the the library, so to speak, our, our end goal is not to simply deliver the insight. The end goal is to help someone reach their goal, which is maybe for a product owner that might be saving time on development or reaching a certain deadline that they have to meet. Um, Or for a designer, it might be being able to decide between a couple different versions of wireframes or different elements or components in a design library um, in order to deliver it to the product owner. So always thinking about, kind of thinking about myself as a designer of research output and -hmm. how can I deliver a product for my, my users, my consumers, which are my colleagues, in a way that helps them reach their end
0: goal. But that's a great point, and it's a a theme that I'm starting to hear more and more, and I'm really glad to hear it. Which is different aspects of design ops and research ops uh, are are designable, and they're they're essentially if they're positioned as products uh, that the design organization, the research organization is going to use, then uh, that that model works very well, and it, it's it's still new to a lot of people, but I guess. Design ops and research ops are still new to a lot of people, so it's not so surprising. I'm just I just love that kind of meta nested way to look at it though. The, the 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 design ops or the design ops. Why not?
1: Yeah, someone asked me today actually what, what research ops was. And I was like, I guess it's enabling enabling people to do their best work, which I know is very lofty, but I think as researchers, our goal is, our, our work context, sorry, is both external and internal. Mm-hmm. So we do a lot of external, you know, interfacing with end users and, and customers, but our, our actual consumers, the end users of what we produce are really internal. Um, and so we have these kind of two flows where we need to get information from outside, but we need to make, sh- from our, from our end end users, if I can say that. But then we need to deliver it in a way that's impactful and actionable for our internal end users. Um, and how can we be enabled to do our best work because our role is very collaborative and in turn enable our colleagues to do their best work?
0: Well, I mean, this kind of goes back to the whole need to, to be able to, to pan to pan back and, and understand scope at different levels because you know we're getting to the point where the the idea of who a user is in let's say an enterprise context is just yes. i mean so bizarre and, and so balkanized i mean you know you, the, is the user the, the product owner is the user the um the designers and researchers who have to deliver a product to users who are ultimately internal let's say they're they're uh staffing a, a call center and they're in turn serving the End customers who never interact with the system directly, but are really in effect users. It's just becoming kind of bizarre. I think a lot of us grew up with a much, much simpler uh, picture of what it means to use or interact with a product, and uh, it's just it ain't your it ain't your, uh, it ain't your uh, grandfather's uh, <laughs> you know, product anymore. It's just a, it's just a, a very different of environment and or more complex types of environments that we're working in um, what helps you when you are you know you're working in this area you're looking to create these ripples do you ever feel like some of those stakeholders i don't know maybe product managers for example or product owners um are still driven by uh more immediate goals that that really kind of fly in the face of the sustainable changes, the small changes you're trying to make. You know, they, maybe they're uh, in they're looking at, at their job as a, a two year gig, and they've already got their eyes on the next one, uh, and they need you to produce more concrete near term changes than a sustainable model is designed for.
1: Yeah, very much yes. Um, I think in terms of one of the challenges around there are actually product owners who who are who are less receptive to research in general because they feel that they 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 know the user very well, you know, they've been in this industry for 10, 20, 30 years and they they simply don't see how a research insight would would it, would impact their values, like you're saying, which are which generally, generally speaking, tend to be delivering something at a certain date um, and saving time in terms of like code code rework time. Um, so I have two approaches there in terms of growing that. One is to to simply leave it. Um, I think finding people who are are adv- advocates and champions and see the value and and focusing on that as an intervention point um, can be more can bring the results that you want quicker. Um, and the other is to very slowly, step by step, turn them into a wave by identifying when they run into those barriers. So I might not necessarily approach them and be like, you know, it would be a cool idea, some personas, but I might ask them how they're doing on schedule um, or take a look at their JIRA and see how much stuff is getting, getting reworked. Um, and then identify, you know, which maybe which of those developers actually is feeling some sort of frustration around the time that they're devoted to doing rework and, and build up from there. So I think it's always bringing it back to the intervention points and seeing where 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 in the flow or which folks in the flow are the most susceptible to, to intervention, to changing their processes or are looking for ways to make things better.
0: You know, I'm... Um... I'm feeling really bad at the moment because you've got so much to say. And at the conference, we're going to try to um, force you into the box of a half hour. Like <laughs> I'm already, I'm already totally guilty about it. But uh, Hannah, this, is, this has been great. Uh, this is going to be yet another fantastic talk uh, at the Design off Summit. Uh, so I'll put my plug in and just say it's November 7th through 9th in, in New York City. Um, I'm gonna have one more question for you, but uh, 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 first, I also wanna put a plug in for something that I've been doing that's actually free. If you're interested in design ops, um, I manage a monthly uh, video conference for the design ops community, research ops as well included there, and we have really interesting people lead discussions every month, like is gonna be doing our next one on diversity in hiring uh, Within design and research ops. We've been doing them for about eight, nine months, got 80 people or so. Uh, we get them on Zoom, and uh, you're welcome to join us and, and be part of it and learn. I just need to, to know who you are. Uh, email us info at rosenfeldmedia.com and say you want to join the uh, design ops community and just mention that you listen to this podcast with Hanna Nagel, and uh, we'll send you an invite. So my last question for you is, uh, I love to end these by asking, what's a really interesting uh, article you've read or person you've come across that you think the world should know about and and maybe I should even have a guest on one of the next Rosenfeld Review Podcasts?
1: Oh yeah, I have two great suggestions. Um, So one would be Amanda Kasari, who is doing a lot of interesting things around um, exploring AI and ethics. She actually just wrote a book which I forget the title of, but Amanda Casari, AI, you'll find it. Well, how do you spell Casari? Uh, C-A-S-A-R-I. Great. And the other would be uh, my colleague Rana Chakrabarti, um, and he's a designer and I think another good systems thinker service designer. And he did a really cool project um, with the Palo Alto team at SAP around scaling design thinking and academic institutions. So those would be my two highly rated recommendations.
0: And how do you spell, uh, uh, I'm not going to even try to pronounce it. You're going to Um,
1: have to. Rana is R-A-N-A and Chakrabarti is C-H-A-K-R-A-B-A-R-T-I.
0: Fantastic. And uh, you are Hannah Nagel, H-A-N-A-N-A-G-E-L, speaking at DesignOps Summit. And uh, you can go to designopsummit.com and learn more about Hannah there. Hannah, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks so much, Leah.